This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm very happy today to say that we are talking with David Kettler and Thomas Wheatland about their terrific book, Learning from Franz L. Neumann, Law, Theory, and the Brute Facts of Political Life. If you want to know anything about Neumann, I very highly recommend this book to you because it has pretty much everything you could ever want about Neumann, who is a very significant figure, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in the course of the interview. So let me turn to you guys and say thank you for being on. Well, pleasure. Pleasure, Marshall. Thanks for having us. Sure. Maybe we could begin the interview by having David tell us a little bit about himself and his interactions with Neumann. I'm the very much senior uh, in chronology and a partner here. I was born in 1930 in Leipzig in Germany. Uh, my family managed to a series of uh, happy accidents and coincidences to flee. We left on the last boat out of Italy, the Contadis de Boia, in 1940. My father died at age 35, a month after we arrived in the United States. Uh, I mean, that's a little autobiographical note, which plays a part, I imagine, in lots of what I've done and what I've neglected to do over the years. Uh, my uh, university, uh, I'll jump to that, I, uh, I went to Columbia College. I lived in New York City. My mother had remarried, and we lived in Jersey City, and so I was a commuter from Jersey City to New York for Columbia College. I uh, took a political theory course in my second year there and decided that this is what I wanted to do. And so I finished undergraduate school in three years, thanks to a benign peculiarities of the Columbia grading system at the time. And I then went on to graduate school. And my first encounter with Franz Neumann was in what had been actually one of the two summer classes that I took, finished the undergraduate degree. So I was in a large lecture class with this very strong, powerful figure with a very thick German accent, whom we all uh, almost immediately, I mean, we heard about him, he had the reputation, and so we came to pay very close attention. And then I uh, finished my coursework for the PhD in 1954. Uh, by then I was married and had a child. I took a year. I had a Rockefeller grant to begin my dissertation. 
dissertation research, which was completely unexpectedly by me on the Scottish moral philosopher named Adam Ferguson, of whom I'd never heard uh, before Franz Neumann picked up, uh, put down his New York Times, looked at me and said, Franz Adam Ferguson picked up this paper again. And so there I went off to do that. And that dissertation took me a while. I, you, have to, you have to cut me short because I'm a talker. Oh, please go ahead, please. They want to hear from you, not me. Uh, okay, so let me then just quickly say that uh, Neumann was a key presence in my graduate work. I did do work with the sociologists at Columbia at that time, Robert Merton and all those other people of a generation that were quite well known at the time, but the seminars were all with Franz Neumann, and they all involved scholarly efforts of a kind that uh, were more demanding and uh, more incomplete uh, than uh, I had expected to do or had done in undergraduate school. And uh, after a year's leave in for this research leave in 54-55, I was able to get a job at Ohio State University. I had some kind of a short-term, I interviewed in some of the Nazir colleges, and they very wisely at that time didn't hire me, and Ohio State turned out to be just right in as much as I then came under the practical coaching of Harvey Mansfield, who was not a political theorist at all, but who had respect back then, who was patient with me, and I worked for him as the assistant to the editor of the Political Science Review for six years, reading every submission to the New York, to the Political Science Review, which was 10 articles a week that I read and commented on and we met and discussed. So I had a training in political science that I had disregarded as my, in my university schooling. In 1970, I accepted an appointment elsewhere, which then fell through because I was denounced as a dangerous radical <laughs> in the aftermath of the student demonstrations of that spring. And so I was practically blacklisted and had I would get indications of jobs and then they would all disappear. I ended up at working for a 23-year-old college president named Botstein in Little College in New England, and I worked for him for a year before I was able to get a position in Canada, where I then taught political theory for 20 years at Trent University in Canada with good colleagues. So that's how it goes. I then retired there at age 60, in part because we had spent a year here in Bard College the year before on the sabbatical, uh, where the same 22-year-old college was by now a lot older than that. And so she'd gotten a job here, and so I took a 60 a retirement at 60. And I've been here. I retired finally here last July 1st on my 89th birthday. Wow. Uh, so that's been the academic career. My work, I want to say something about that very quickly, just touch the topic, uh, the work on... Ferguson raised a set of issues about intellectuals as distinct from philosophers that I then needed to pursue. I went then to a number of years of work on Karl Mannheim and on 
the whole literature of Mannheim. When I was at uh, Trinity University, I organized the faculty in a union that got me interested in problems of law and labor. So I did some work in that field and published some writings in that area. And then I think, well, I'll skip a few things because we did Mannheim things got quite extended and long. I then went to the problem of the exiles, now the exiles generation, and did organize a lot of group research projects that generated three, four, five books that we did on on the question of the 1930s exile, which of course brought me back to Neumann, who I'd simply been waiting to uh, be ready to be ready for. And I met Tom then at one of these conferences and found that he had a balance in background that he knew a lot about the Frankfurt School theory, had written just a very good book on this. And so we had had worked over the years, each in our own fields, but also on this common project that we're now discussing. So I don't know, I, I must have skipped some things, but that's the overview. And uh, so here I am about to celebrate my 90th birthday. And uh, what I'm doing right now is, well, I'll tell you about that later. Okay, great. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was it's quite a life, I have to say. That's quite a remarkable life. Tom, could you say a little bit about yourself? Sure, Marshall. Thanks. Um, so I'm um, an intellectual history, a German intellectual history by training. Uh, I was uh, I did my undergraduate studies at Brown University, uh, where Mary Gluck was the the scholar who exposed me uh, to the field. Uh, very thankfully, um, and then I went on to graduate school at Boston College, where uh, my mentor was was Paul Brynus. Uh, and my first book was um, entitled The Frankfurt School in Exile, and that was, I mean, in some ways it was a reception history, but also a reevaluation of the, the, the history of, um, of critical theory in light of the, the exile experience. And, and a lot of what I wanted to demonstrate in that work were all of the really substantive connections um, that uh, the figures of the Horkheimer Circle or, or Frankfurt School uh, had with uh, intellectuals uh, and, and networks of intellectuals uh, within the United States. So it, part of the reason that I came to this project is because um, for that dissertation, which which then became my first book, um, you know, I mean, Franz Neumann was, was, was someone who I had read and studied. And in fact, I had uh, I'd gone down to the National Archives to look at um, at some of the, the the files related to the work that he had done with the Office of Strategic Services, together with Herbert Marcuse and and, and Otto Kirchheimer uh, during the Second World War, and it, it ultimately proved to be too difficult and awkward to kind of crowbar that material into that first project. Um, and so when David approached me, so David and I met through a conference that he uh, held at Bard right around the time that I finished and defended my dissertation uh, called Contested Legacies. And um, and so I, I came to the conference and I talked a little bit about Paul Lazesfeld and his relationship the Frankfurt School, so just like one little teeny case study. Um, and David and I got to know one another. We edited um, a special edition of a journal that included several papers from that conference. And and then when he 
approached me right at the time that I was, um, in fact, publishing the Frankfurt School in Exile uh, and mentioned this idea of doing a book on Franz Neumann. Um, I, I was really excited about the idea. Um, you know, Neumann was, was one of the people I was particularly intrigued by, uh, but really felt as though I'd, I'd had to largely um, exclude him. And so this was a wonderful opportunity to to be able to explore him in much greater detail, probably more detail than I'd ever imagined uh, at the moment of its inception. And certainly I had no idea that I would need to uh, become as familiar and comfortable with the sociology of law as uh, as became necessary. But um, yeah, that's that's how I came to the project. Terrific. Could one of you, and I won't pick, uh, just tell the listeners briefly, this will sound like a ridiculous question, who Franz Neumann was? Who wants Should to I go? Do it, Tom? I, I, oh. Sure. Um, do you want to go, David, or do you want me to? Well, why don't you, because I ramble on sure. too much. <laughs> okay, no, no, that's fine. Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> So, uh, so Franz Neumann was born uh, right at the turn of the century, 1900, in Silesia. Um, he was uh, he went off to to university uh, and became embroiled in the November Revolution of 1918, as a lot of other people from his generation, um, and that then brought him into the world of of labor politics. Um, and that then soon morphed into a, a career in labor law. Now, one of the things that we spend some time talking a little bit about in uh, in the book is is how sort of awkward um, the position of of particularly lawyers in the entire Marxian intellectual tradition is. You know, like what a fraught position that is. But that is in fact uh, what he spent really the first half of his life doing. Uh, so he worked uh, as a um, as a representative of some of the biggest uh, labor unions in the Weimar Republic, and and then in fact did a lot of work for um, for the Social Democratic Party uh, in some of the most intensely fraught years at the end of the Weimar Republic, and then of course when the Nazis came to power, uh, you know I mean he was identified very early on as one of their political uh, enemies, and and so he was briefly uh, interned in a concentration camp and then fled the country as soon as he had the opportunity uh, and did a brief period of exile in Britain where he uh, he got a second doctoral degree, this time not in law. So, you know, I mean, it is interesting that he chose to no longer uh, continue uh, as a practicing attorney. Instead, he, he, um, he began a, a second doctoral education in political theory with with Harold Lasky at the London School of Economics, uh, and there he also studied with Morris Ginsburg uh, and with Karl Mannheim. Uh, he completed that doctoral dissertation um, and then had the opportunity to travel with Lasky to the United States uh, to presumably meet with people about potential job prospects. And part of his uh, part of the way that he was able to clear a visa to get over to the United States and stay here for as long as he did is that he and Lasky had contacts with the Institute for Social Research and Max Horkheimer, who at this time were based in New York. Um, and so Horkheimer uh, um, sort of 
professionally vouched for Neumann and said that Neumann was doing work for the Institute, which he was, in fact, doing to promote the interests of the Institute in the UK. Uh, and so he came over here. The job prospects in America didn't really pan out, but his relationship with Horkheimer grew, although maybe not in the way that Neumann would have preferred. So initially what he was doing was a lot of um, of actually lawyerly work, um, uh, you know, handling um, a really ugly lawsuit that that the main benefactor of the institute, uh, Felix Weil, uh, was having with his brother-in-law in Argentina, and and then he was also doing work on behalf of the institute, trying to rescue its library from the Nazis, and enlisting the help of the British government to do that. But that then became, I mean, he was able to parlay that into um, a career as a. Um, um, uh, I wouldn't say that he was certainly one of the closest associates of the Horkheimer Circle, but um, a somewhat distant uh, associate of the Horkheimer Circle. Um, so, you know, I mean, what he was doing was certainly related to what they were doing, but uh, we may have an opportunity to talk about that a little bit later. There, there were also things that he was... I'm uh, sorry? Just to interrupt for a second. I mean, the image that I am more likely to use that Tom is he was a bargaining partner, he was a negotiating partner at the Institute. That is, and, and that's a very a complicated but important role, and they did strike those terrific deals, as well as some cases where they agreed to to maintain distance. Is that yes. Did or, yeah. Okay. I yeah, just, I would say well, that I that's like that Sorry. Yeah. Yes. And then, um, you know, I mean, ultimately, partly as a result of some of the successes that, and, and through bargaining that he he brought to them, they they sort of unceremoniously uh, parted professional company with him, uh, and that's the moment that he started working full time with the OSS. Um, out of Washington, D.C., which he then did until the end of the war, at which point um, he was able to make a fairly smooth transition um, to Columbia University, which is where he taught until the end of his life in 1954, when he died very prematurely in a tragic car accident in Switzerland. So that's, um, that is a fairly quick, abbreviated uh, biography. Mm -hmm. David, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I mean I think that that the I the the overlap between his experience as a labor lawyer, where the a primary mode of interaction is a negotiated relationship, into the that that play that developed strength that he had, and and that's a pattern that follows. So that. His relation with Harold Lasky has some of that character, and with the group there, I mean, he'll quote Paul Mannheim, but he certainly is not about to go to bed with Paul Mannheim. Uh, but he was somebody who was able to learn and teach. And so, when we call the book, subtitle it, you know, or call it "Learning from Franz Neumann." We have a non-passive notion of what learning means. I mean, Neumann learned from uh, a great many people, and he taught a great many people. So 
that kind of a learning relationship, which is a reciprocal uh, relationship, which involves critical distance, which involves recognition of imperfections, but uh, which generates a kind of a shared role, a shared institution. And that seems to us, or at least when we are thinking about the title of the book, uh, that sense of learning, which is not a passive thing, uh, is a quality of his work and his relationship with Marx and relationship with Hegel and his relationship with a great many legal theorists. And so when he summary, when he engages these uh, lengthy treatments, detailed treatments of uh, Montesquieu or whoever it might be, it always has that quality to it that, that you're watching somebody in a process of exchange and of learning, which is why at least, you know, it's um, why we think he's such a valuable person to take in some detail to follow that process as he learns, as we learn from him learning. I'm sorry, I don't want to make that a cliche, but I think that that notion, that kind of a bargaining relationship that takes place in a terrific classroom is where the best student is not the most abject subject of his teacher mm-hmm. or hers. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. I want to go to the kind of early moment in his life. And I don't know, maybe I just hang out with the wrong people, but uh, most of the lawyers I know don't have any sort of relationship with Marx or Hegel or anybody who writes any theory. And then most of the political theorists that I know, and I'm a Russian historian, so I know a little bit about Russian political theorists, especially, you know, Lenin and so on, they don't have any relationship to actually, well, work. <laughs> and and yeah. I don't think Lenin ever worked a day in his life. Uh, but, <laughs> um, well, that's probably unfair. But you see what I'm saying? So uh, Neumann is interesting in the sense that he uh, was theoretically minded, but he also worked as a lawyer. Um, can you talk a little bit about how these two things interacted? My lawyer never mentions Marx or Hegel or anybody. I, I would say that as both a legal theorist and a political theorist, um, that that what Neumann really did was he practiced a kind of sociology of 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 political theory and of law. So he's always balancing whether it's legal theory or it's political theory, he's always balancing them against a historical analysis of that theory in its immediate context. So, you know, when addressing any kind of theoretical legal problem, you know, he's looking at how that problem and how that theory operate at a given historical moment in time, and he's really using a very rigorous sociological mode of analysis um, to, to look at them in relation to the to that. Um, and so, you know, what that equips him to be able to do is to be able to evaluate these theories uh, in their material context and to be able to, to assess how rationally they correspond to this to the material circumstances of the world at a given moment. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do want to pass this on to David, because this is a topic that uh, that is near and dear to him. Okay, David, go ahead. Yeah, 
Yani I think that the uh, uh, it's I mean the concept of of his conception of how power works. You know, what are the resources of power, and how does one have an impact in the world of power, uh, which shapes so much. Uh, that brings together the idea that you can't possibly be a lawyer given the problematic, you know, the kind of struggle for a measure of power on the part of the labor movement without at the same time being able to reflect on that. That comes from the beginning in his first doctoral dissertation. He's, you know, immediately concerned with those issues. So that, so I think that one way of, you know, thinking about it is that it's a, I mean, to distinguish it from the other people that you had in mind, is that it really his, the idea, his recognition of the legal structure of the legal system as a very important reference point for uh, the structures and operations of power in the society. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So what were Neumann's politics in the 20s? He was a member of the SPD. He was a member, he was a socialist, but was he a... Marxist, or and how did if he was, how did that affect the way that he looked at law? Because I know that you know from the standard Marxist viewpoint is that uh, all law in the present conditions that is under capitalism is bourgeois law, and I, I'm not sure how you work within bourgeois law. And also, the other thing that was interesting to me is, is that I think from the stereotypical Marxist point of view that negotiating for labor unions is a kind of revisionism of the Bernsteinian sort. Am I wrong about that? Anyway, could one of you talk about that? Do you want to go first, David, or do you want me? Well, why don't you begin, and, and then uh, I'll rest of it, yeah. Well, I, I think the design that, that Neumann um, works within is is one that had been really pioneered by by Sinsheimer, who was who was one of, of Neumann's mentors. So the idea with the formulation of, of the Weimar constitution is that you know that was a that was merely a political constitution, but that that constitution would grow and evolve into a social constitution through the collective bargaining carried out by um, by unions and their labor lawyers. Uh, so I think from Neumann's standpoint, he was contributing to that evolving and, and, and socialization then um, of, of, of both Weimar politics as, as well as Weimar society. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, is it is it different from from Marx, uh, it, it, to some degree it is. It's certainly different from Engels and from Kotsky. Um, 
but, uh, you know, I mean, he was by no means alone in this project. And so, you know, I, I think for uh, a good portion of his early career, uh, you know, he was seeing the fruits of all of that. And certainly during the golden years of Weimar, so now we're talking, you know, in the wake of the hyperinflation up to the crash of 1929, you know, there was a lot that he could point to that had been achieved uh, on behalf of labor lawyers like himself and on behalf of the organized labor movement and the Social Democratic Party. I, I think in light of what happens during the Great Depression, all of this then gets re-exposed to uh, historical and sociological revision. And that's really the moment in time when, you know, he, he in retrospect, thinks, well, you know, maybe some of this was built on some faulty assumptions. So I would say, you know, he was Marxist as an analyst and as a theorist all the way along. But, you know, Marxism, when it comes to the to the topic of labor law, um, yeah, as you point out, that is a slightly awkward fit. But but um, but, you know, Weimar was an unusual uh, legal and political settlement in some ways. So um, if, I, if I could just it, jump in, he was an evol- what we would call an, I don't know if we would call it, but I would call it an evolutionary socialist. He would, did not want to uh, uh, um, take Berlin and institute the People's Republic. Uh, I, I would say in his early career, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's moments where he questions that and and um and I, I what would you say david i i i yeah well i think it's for him a learning process this relationship and uh you know the in the book we have a chapter on marxism and law and and we try to explore his relationship to both um with the you know, starting out with what I think was his uh, a, a constant motif for him, that one of the modes of power, one of the ways in which power was structured and manifested and struggled over was in these legal forms. And then the question of whether you could simply dispense with law and somehow breakthrough directly uh, was simply not a, from his standpoint, a politically realistic understanding. So that the whole question about Marx, Marxism as the analysis of the social processes at work, but then the dispute within Marxism, and indeed Marx's own alternate views and the tension, as uh, Tom just pointed out, between Lenin and other Marxists, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Engels and other Marxists on just this issue. I mean, that is part of where he starts out. And the law is a mode of power. It's a, a place where these, you can't dispense with that dimension without, if you're engaged in some kind of cumulative political transformative process. But I don't think, you know, we then came and the interesting place to look then at in Neumann, and we then come to that later when he comes to England before he writes his second more academically controlled dissertation, he actually writes anonymous 
or pseudonymous uh, writings criticizing the strategies that he himself he denounces from Neumann, <laughs> among others, uh, for their excessive trust in that accumulation of, of socio-legal development. Uh, but, you know, that, that was... The man is somebody who, when you, you have to have a big fat book with a lot of details, precisely because he was always learning himself. And so they take very great distance from him and try to generalize it. You'll get a textbook thing, and it's of no use. Uh, so I think, I mean, he has some terrifically important insights into the way in which uh, political power works in relation to the legal system, and consequently, how if one wants to transmute the direction and purpose and a design of political power, one has to also interact in some way with the legal order. Um, so it's a, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, but he wasn't comfortable as a, a, well, he was in terms of the Social Democratic Party, he was in the center, uh, but he had his own strategy that didn't emerge more clearly until he learned more. Yeah, I wanted to just follow up with one thing, and I think that that is one thing that really distinguishes this book from virtually everything else that's ever been written about Neumann, is that for the most part, people look at particular moments in Neumann's life and works associated with those moments, and what they fail to capture then is that there's a huge difference between the young Neumann and the old Neumann. There's also, I would say, there's an even sharper difference between the the Neumann in England that David just described, who's who's actually condemning his earlier self, than there is almost at any other moment in his life. And one of the things that it it certainly makes me powerfully appreciative of um, that, you know, even though my first book was was on the theme of exile, is just how totally confusing these times were that he lived through and how viewed from the vantage from the vantage point of exile you know his thought is capturing all of that nuance and complexity as he's constantly processing and reprocessing all of these dizzying events that he's seeing develop right before his eyes i mean we're living in a similarly confusing moment right now i can really appreciate um you know the challenges that that he uh that he was grappling with. So if we could move forward just a little bit now, he, uh, he's associated with the SPD and when the Nazis come to power, uh, he's, uh, on their blacklist and he opts to leave. Um, why did he opt to leave exactly? I, I think he feared, uh, further political reprisals. I mean, he did get, he did get detained and locked up. And I think there was a very real threat, uh, uh, you know, I mean, threat to his life, his health, uh, being in prison for potentially a very long period of time. Uh, now, you know, he certainly could have followed other members of the SPD East. I mean, there was a robust community in Prague that he could have joined, but he, he opted to go to Britain. And I think that some of that had to do with, uh, 
the attraction that that Lasky held for him and the possibilities that 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 Lasky offered. So some of that attraction was intellectual, some of it was obviously uh, material as well. But but I think that is what conditioned that choice. David, yeah, I mean, again, I, I realize that it's a danger to sort of get everything too flat and smooth. Um, but you know, he really realized he needed to learn more about. <laughs> that is unprotected. I mean, the critique at that point, and but yeah, it is cumulative. He doesn't simply throw everything he had done before uh, away. But you know, he he is working against brute facts of political life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you read him at the very end, you don't know that he really has a hell of a lot of faith in socialist development at that point anymore, simply because of brute facts of political life. And so the interplay between Neumann's design, and in that sense consistent design, to, you know, for a, a social change, for, for, for social development, uh, and the... Uh, enormously powerful forces operative that render calculations uh, wrong. And so you have to recalculate, and you have to recalculate, you have to relearn. And so he goes to the Institute as well, not just because it happens to be an opportunity, but he does try, he engages very actively in the debates of the Institute, even though he reserves uh, the outcomes of those involvements to himself so that he has another independent basis. But he's always involved. He's involved in other people's research projects. He's involved in trying to... So there is that kind of teaching-learning process that I had mentioned earlier uh, as a feature of his work. I don't know if that... You know, it's really difficult to... be very clear. Yeah, no, that answers the question. But he is a socialist, and yet at the end, I don't think he thinks the prospects for socialism are very good. Uh, And there's a real sense of pessimism, and he's struggling against this uh, Epicurean side, uh, which, uh, you know, maybe I exaggerate a bit. Uh, And Tom and I have and pulled at some of these things, which is what productive collaboration consists of. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm struck by his tough mind, his realism. Uh, mm-hmm. There has to always be something possible to do, but the possibilities are not shaped by your designs or by your wishes. True. That's what we see that right now, don't we? Um, yeah. That's why I think that we should get a lot of people reading from yeah. this work, even yeah. if they have to struggle a bit during the long chapters on his theory. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, the book that uh, I think made his name among American academics, since the only book by him that I knew anything about, and that is Behemoth. Um, can you, uh, one of you, talk a little bit about the origins of that book, why he wrote it, and what he says in it? And I have a first question. Was it written in German first and then translated, or did he write it in English? Uh, 
I don't know. I, good question. I, <laughs> I don't know the answer. Okay, go ahead. That, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I just thought it was amazing. I but. mean, you know, it's not brilliant English. <laughs> yeah, well, right. Okay. I'm very brilliant thinking. Yeah, right. Uh, so why did, know, he, why did that, he write the book, and what does he say in it? Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing, and, and I certainly want to hear Tom on this too, is, you know, it has to do with the dynamics of his relation with the Institute. And so he proposed at various times that the Institute uh, engage in work on the, the, the labor history themes in Germany, labor power, and the critique of it. And those projects never came through, partly because of resistance within the Institute, partly tactical resistance to being identified with labor themes, uh, partly because of their own uh, consensus within the Institute that labor was not the relevant variable or the decisive variable anymore. And so what he managed to do, uh, but it was, he was you know, on the edge of being ousted from the Institute, but he wasn't yet. Uh, but he did manage to negotiate with Horkheimer a kind of authority to write an independent book, to make a contract with the, uh, and to develop the argument about the, the, the national socialist regime and its relation to this labor motif that uh, the Institute itself was not prepared to back. So, you know, that was then a very important uh, work for him. It was the culmination to a point of his understanding of uh, what, uh, what he had learned about this uh, regime. And, uh, and it was done then, and it has this interesting uh, tense relationship with the Institute thinking about these matters uh, and indeed the Institute thinking about uh, what was happening in the world of, of the economy. But I don't know if we have time to get into that. Uh, Tom, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just I wanted to add that I think so. Neumann's timing with this project is, uh, and and I would say in some ways his fortunes with the with the institute are dramatically affected by the fact that. So I would say that at the same moment that Neumann's star begins to wane, and I would also add a little bit before that, Eric Fromm's star not only waned but but shot out. Um, it's it's at the same moment that Adorno is sort of rising ascendant in the Institute. So, you know, there had been a plan to pursue uh, a project that was largely Neumann's design to do a kind of sociological structural analysis of, of the rise of Nazism that would have very prominently featured labor and the rise of German cartels as sort of the 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 the, the opposing force that, that ultimately winds up eclipsing all. Um, and then very rapidly with Adorno's ascendancy in the Institute, the whole focus of that project very rapidly shifts 
to a focus on a, a crisis of, of German culture. And um, not only did that trouble Neumann, but it really became profoundly unattractive to the United States sponsors of that project. So Eugene Anderson, who was, uh, you know, the main point person for the Institute, who was American, who was trying to, um, to facilitate a successful grant with the Rockefeller Foundation, he was very troubled by this and thought that this would be, that this angle would be an absolute non-starter. And then, of course, the Rockefeller Foundation, much to Neumann's, uh, you know, no surprise on his part, nor any surprise to, to Eugene Anderson, that was precisely their take on it. So, I think behemoth was his opportunity to to actually uh, fulfill uh, exactly the design that he'd intended to carry out. And yeah, David's right. There is a way in which that follows up on a lot of the work that he'd already done uh, in the London dissertation that he'd done with Lasky, as well as... I would say the really significant article that he wrote for um, for the Institute's journal. So it's it's building on top of all of that. And um, you know, if you look at the American reviews of Behemoth, uh, you know, those scholars in America who um, you know, were were able to appreciate uh, it, its its theoretical standpoint certainly did. But I would say that the majority of of scholars who who read and applauded uh, Behemoth were, were not able to really fully appreciate its its theoretical grounding. And instead, what they were largely praising was just all of the empirical data that he assembled, you know, to, I would say for, for the moment that he's writing it, we're talking, you know, it comes out in 1942 for the first time. Um, you know, it was unparalleled in terms of the amount of German source material uh, that, that it was bringing to bear on its analysis of Nazism. And it's it's actually presenting a fairly, uh, I think, to a lot of Americans, what would have been a very surprising uh, conclusion about all of that, you know, which is to say that far from being a totalitarian state or an authoritarian state, that really Nazi Germany is a, it's a non-state, it's, it's a failed state, and it's a, a state in which the rule of law is being actively uh, subverted. Uh, by these various groups, you know, so it's it's not the Nazi party that's running the whole thing. That was actually when he entered OSS. That was the that was the uh, that was their understanding uh, within OSS of of how the Nazi state operated. I think by the time Neumann became involved, and I think he he actually contributed a lot to changing OSS's thinking on this. Um, now it's actually you know there's there are these. Um, these various groups, the Nazi party is one of several groups. You also have the military, you have the bureaucracy, uh, and of course you have the business community. Uh, they all have different interests, uh, but their interests do overlap in enough ways that they are able, at least at the moment that he's talking about it, uh, to, to cooperate to a degree. Um, you know, the question going forward is to to what extent is that cooperation going to continue? Uh, to what extent may some of them be conquered uh, by others in all of this? Um, but yeah, that that's what I wanted to add. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's also, you know, the, the attempt to explain why the war, why the expansionist drive was, you know, the thesis being that that was the way in which this discordant elements could be made to sing one song. 
Yeah. Uh, because there was something in in it for each of them, or some grand thing in it for each of them. Uh, but uh, that the question of how they would even deal with a victory, quite apart from the realities that they would be facing, uh, was you know that's part of the puzzle, the problem of the Hamath. Uh, so. You know, I, I think that that, uh, but that was a vision uh, that, as you said, Tom. The you know you have. I, I went also through all the reviews of of that book, and and they sort of simply saying, oh well, there's this Marxist stuff, and you push that aside. <laughs> uh, and, but I think the fact that they were being introduced to power factors in reading this book that that had been somehow put aside in the dramatization of the of the Nazi regime uh, of its party activity uh, was you know made such a powerful contribution. Anyway, I think your audience is going to get tired of our voices. Oh, I don't know. I'm not quite done yet. <laughs> I don't know what our audience, <laughs> okay, but I'm well, interested. We're, we're, but I will stop. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. you know, it's just that you can see we really still have unfinished business with this guy. Sure. And I, I, that's where we should be even after 40, 30, 20 years. Yeah. I, I want to maybe we'll close with this question and you guys can discuss this because I'm just very interested personally in. Well, how to put it best. So on the plus side, Neumann proved to be a very, he proved to be a very good American in a way. I mean, he was, he was very good to the authorities, worked for the OSS. And then later he, if I'm not incorrect, he goes on and he works at Nuremberg for the war crimes tribunal and, and such. So that, you know, obviously that, you know, most Americans would consider that a good thing. But on the other hand, uh, you know, he is a Marxist and a socialist. I just wonder what he, you know, what kind of, what, how did he, what did he think about the Soviet Union, and did he have dealings with the Soviet Union, and you know that sort of thing? Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I don't know, but go ahead. Well, uh, let me just try very quickly. Uh, I, I think that you know, he, I thought, I think he found the Soviet Union as a uh, as another one of these un unwanted uh one of these brute interventions uh nevertheless that there was something behind it that he was not that you know this Soviet Union was interesting to him from the standpoint of its enemies. And so the Soviet, uh, so that he was never pro-Soviet or indeed at all. I mean, his, his liberal democratic uh, commitments were pretty firm. But I think that uh, the question was not simply of being pro-Soviet, but being in some measure anti-anti-Soviet. Because he looked at what were the major forces of the anti-Soviet side of the play, so I think that he had that kind of a 
more complicated relationship to it. Uh, although certainly by the time he's teaching courses at Columbia, we're simply he's teaching us about totalitarianism, mm -hmm. and by then he's got the Soviets clearly in that uh, in that, that compartment. But I, you know, I think it is a more. It was always a complicated relationship because it it was a it was an accident on the way to going someplace where it would be the right place to go. <laughs> right. For him. Right. Is that right, Tom? Yeah, I I would agree, and I think you know one of the things that that we maybe haven't touched on enough is. That is is the concept of, of freedom for for Neumann. I mean, I, I think for him, uh, you know, the 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 reason for uh, studying law and upholding the rule of law, and and the reason for studying political theory. I mean, I I would say, you know, if there's something for me at least that cuts right down to the essence of what he stood for, he wrote, "The truth of political theory is political freedom," uh, and and I think that for him that was so. You know, was there initially promise uh, with the Bolshevik Revolution? Yeah, to some degree. And then a whole series of incredibly uh, bad turns took place. And I, I think, you know, by, by any uh, measure, uh, you know, the, the appalling lack of freedom was something that always really troubled him. But, but was there the potential uh, that, that those mistakes could be overcome? I think that that was the that was the possibility that he never wanted to completely foreclose. So, you know, I mean, he was, he was patient and hopeful uh, that things had the potential to change. And I think he certainly recognized, you know, that, that a lot of what, uh, a lot of, of what Lenin contributed and, and Stalin contributed were, were incredibly misguided. Uh, and yet, um, you know, I mean, I think some of that he also, identified, you know, Russia's circumstances being very different from Germany's circumstances. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, he was, he was also very particular, particularist with regard to these places. But yeah, you know, I mean, certainly if you look at, um, at some of his analyses of, of the East German regime, you know, now we're talking like 1950, um, you know, he's not, he's not terribly happy with either uh, the policies being carried out by East German authorities with regard to questions of democratization or denazification, you know, two, two things that he heartily thought needed to be carried out with regard to post-war Germany. But he also thought that for very different reasons, uh, you know, the policies that were unfolding in West Germany weren't terribly, didn't go as far uh, and didn't accomplish as much as he would have liked either. So, um, I think when it comes to the Cold War, you know, I mean, he didn't live long enough to see it uh, fully develop and fully blossom. But I, I think he was very disappointed. I think, uh, you know, if you look at his contributions to OSS, he really thought that there was an opportunity that was missed, that that for there to be a, a truly um, uh, positive potential for, for Europe's post-war development, it, it necessitated a cooperation and an understanding between the United States and the Soviet Union that just never materialized. Um, so I, I think that, that that was another contribution to his profound pessimism uh, toward the end of his life. Well, I, I would say he was hardly alone in continuing to hold the 
candle of hope for the Soviet Union. I, I think many of the listeners to this podcast will know that uh, Eric Hobsbawm and E.P. Thompson were doing it in the 80s. So it's, yeah. it's not it's it's not uh, it's not that unusual. So th- we, we've taken up a lot of your time and I very much appreciate it. Let me close the interview by asking the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And we'll start with David. David, what are you working on now? I'm actually uh, I'm doing some translation work. I we compiled uh, two volumes of studies uh, developing a thesis about the exile, about the immigration, or the insight into the immigration of that generation that had to do with uh, what we call what I called the first letters which had to do with how the exiles responded to first letters from people they had known in, who had remained in Germany or the other way. And so this theme of first letters turns out to have been quite a productive way of thinking about the exile and their um, understanding of the world and, and, and also the role they played. And so we put out two volume collected works about where so I'm just right now doing uh work that's appropriate to my age. <laughs> I spent three, four hours a day doing translation uh of texts that various people had written, uh which also fosters me reflecting some more on that whole set of issues. So I you know, at the moment I'm compelled to be fairly realistic about tackling all new areas of research or projects. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I, I should say that uh, I'm, I'm 58 now, and I've written a number of books and many, many articles. And I I look back on what I've written, or if, my bibliography and so on and so forth, and all I can think is if somebody just looked at it, and then tried to deduce why I did things on the basis of what I had written, they would get it entirely wrong. <laughs> entirely. If they didn't have access to, like, my email account. <laughs> if they had that, then they might actually render a decent description of my life. But without that, you would be just, it would be impossible just by looking at what I've actually published. So I, I think it sounds like a fascinating project. Um, Tom? Um, so I have been furiously writing lots and lots of book reviews lately as I'm contemplating. I'm really trying to decide between two book projects because... Okay, uh, we'll decide right now. I'll decide for you. <laughs> yeah, so you can decide for me, Marshall. This is perfect. Uh, one, one is a very short book that a publisher approached me to write uh, that would be kind of a reintroducing Eric Fromm to advanced undergraduates and graduate students in the social sciences, and I think especially in sociology and and history. Um, And so that would be very, very short, uh, like maybe 50,000, 60,000 words. Uh, And that is appealing uh, for various reasons. Um, But then there's another part of me that's torn by the idea of doing a really massive... um, public intellectual contribution um, focusing on the history of fear or anxiety uh, as an intellectual construct Um, and and looking at the history of that idea 
uh, over a very, very long period of time uh, operative in Western civilization. Uh, so that that's, you know, they're two very different projects that would yield two very different results. Um, and part of the reason that I'm taking my time to make the decision is because, uh, yeah, I mean, as you both mentioned, I'm getting older. And, well, it's a big uh, I recognize time. that, uh, you, you know, I mean, you can do one with each. I think the anxiety thing is great because it is a, it was one of Neumann's last uh, realities that he felt he had to confront, and he didn't quite know with what he was learning about it. Uh, no. So it would be an interesting continuation. Of the yeah, Neumann. that's... It. It certainly connects with that. And, and I also find that it's something that comes up in my teaching endlessly, uh, not so much student anxiety as much as the anxiety of various historic subjects who I, I tend to focus on in my teaching, uh, both to uh, introductory courses for undergrads as well as uh, advanced electives. So, I, I, yeah. I, just, I just have to step in here and just editorialize for a second. I mean, one of the things that historians know that nobody else knows, well, I don't know if historians even know it, but I know it, is that when you study history, uh, history is like something that happens to you. It's not, you can't mm. predict these things and it can almost always be worse. And so when something like the coronavirus happens, yeah. You look you look at yourself you're like, "Oh, this is one of those things." And I tell my kids all the time, "You'll remember this your whole life. This is like yeah. a, one of those moments and you don't have very many of them, but this is one of them and you're in it." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I yeah, it's it's really kind of an amazing thing that kind of perspective is that you get by studying history because this is one of them. We're in one right now and this isn't even a very big one. Imagine having to uproot your entire family and move to Britain in 1936. <laughs> that, yeah. that one, <laughs> yeah, that one would be a big one. So anyway, yeah. I, I want to thank both of you guys for being on the show. It's been absolutely fascinating talking uh, to both of you. Let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to David Kettler and Thomas Wheatland about their book, Learning from Franz Neumann, Law, Theory, and the Brute Facts of Political Life. I hope you got and buy the book. Uh, David and Thomas, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks for having us, Marshall. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Okay. 